All right, good morning. Hey, I'm Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. It's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, if you would be turning in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2, we're continuing our journey through First and Second Peter and just want to make sure that we're keeping some things in view from, from that first letter and even the second. I uh, just want to remind us that in the first letter, remember that the key thing that, that Peter was trying to communicate is that they were going to suffer because of who they are in the world right? And it is their relationship as Christians, as elect exiles with the world that was going to bring them suffering. So essentially what he was saying is the trouble for you is going to be from without. And so therefore you steal yourself against the persecution of the world by remembering who and whose you are. Don't forget the gospel, right? And so he said that if you can suffer in the way that Christ suffered and you've been equipped to do that, then, uh, then you will reflect Christ in the world. In this second letter, he's actually pivoting and saying that actually the problem is going to come from within. False teachers are going to rise among you, and we're going to hear more about that this morning from chapter 2, but false teachers are going to rise among you and try to destroy you from within. And so the way in which you combat false teachers from within is actually the same way in which you deal with persecution from without. Remember the gospel. Remember who Christ is and grow in your knowledge of both God the Father and Christ the Son. The Spirit shows up minimally in the books of 1 and 2 Peter, but we would include him as well to be fully Trinitarian. And so he is making it very clear that these false teachers will not have the final say. They will do some damage, though. And you need to make sure that you're maturing and growing. Remember how he opened the letter is he, he reminded him who they are. And he said, I want you to grow in knowledge of both God and Christ. And then he gives that list of things that, that's kind of similar to the Greek virtues, but, but so much greater than because of their biblical nature. And he says, make sure you're growing in these things. And he listed them off. And he said, but if you're not growing in these things, you will be as one who is blind and you will, you will falter and you will be easily led astray. And so Peter is showing his great heart for us. He says, even though I know I am about to die, I'm going to make sure that you guys remember these things above all. And so he continues this morning uh, as he opens up the, the second chapter and he begins to explain what a false teacher is. And that's going to be critical to us this morning. But before we answer that question, let me ask you a question. What most grabs your attention and makes you think that something is true? See, this is actually a pretty critical question because I think that oftentimes we allow our emotions to decide what we think is true, right? We really do. We, I have a friend of mine who's a neuro, he, he's actually a neurosurgeon. I don't know if you get much smarter than neurosurgeon. And he would say sometimes when I would say something, he says, that has the ring of truth to it. I'm not sure what that means. I don't know if he heard like a little bell. I, I don't know really what was going on there. But, but so often it's the same for us, right? It's what resonates with us. Then we say, okay, that makes me feel better or that, that, that resonates with who I think I am. And therefore it must be true. That's actually a very dangerous place to be. Thomas Watson, uh, in his book on the Beatitudes, makes it very clear. He says, we, we are apt to measure all by comfort. Think about how dangerous that is. Especially if 
one of our chief idols, which has proven itself over and over and over again since Eden. In fact, it's the first great sin is the idol of safety and security by which we take all of our shortcuts, right? We take all these shortcuts in life because what we value most is safety and security, which Peter is firmly pushing against, which the gospel pushes against. The gospel is not safe, is it? And it doesn't call us to a safer life. In fact, that's what Peter's preparing them for, is suffering both from without and from within. And so because we are apt to judge everything by comfort, listen to what Thomas Watson says. He says, um, we, we therefore think that we, we never have God's presence in our ordinances unless we have joy. That means that we don't think that God is at work in something unless it brings us great joy. Have any of you ever experienced godly sorrow for your own sin, for the sin of the world, for death, for any of the things that are not the way it's supposed to be? Did you not think that God was in that? That he was so near to you that in, in that moment where you were so convicted of your sin that you thought your heart would rend in two, it was he who was there to put it back together again. It was he who was there to comfort it, but it was also he who rent it in the first place. And so we need to be careful. So here's what I'm not saying. For those of you who are wondering, man, this guy, he just wants all everything to hurt. No, no, not at all. In fact, there ought to be times of great joy. And oftentimes God is so gracious to allow us to feel the nearness of his peace and love. And that brings us great joy. And there's also great joy in the fruit that is born from our lives and our ministries and, and just wonderful things in the world. Don't get me wrong. It's not all sorrow. But what we're apt to do, according to Thomas Watson, and I think this is true both experientially, personally, and in pastoring, is we're apt to judge everything by whether or not it makes us feel better or grants us joy, which leads to a certain measure of fragility that keeps us from being able to hear the truth. And so we are set up for the false teachers long before they ever rise from our midst. It's funny, uh, this goes back to the Greeks as well. Pindar, who was a, a, a poet and, and master of odes, especially about sports things, said, custom is king. And what did he mean by that? Well, Herodotus said that actually what he means by that is this. Every man thinks that what he's doing is right. So what I mean by that, that means if we're doing it, I already think it's right. And you may say, well, duh, why else would we do it? But what that does, though, oftentimes is keep us from hearing any other truth. Let me give you a for instance. Um, how many of you think that a low-fat diet is the single best way to keep diabetes at bay? It, according to current science, it's not, actually. But you, if that's what you thought, you're thinking, oh, he's crazy. He's listened to one TED Talk too many. I knew it. He just needs to stick with the Bible and stay out of science. You may be right, actually. But what I'm saying is we've bought into certain things for so long, no matter what it may be. I don't care what you think about a low-fat diet. Uh, let that it will decide itself. If you do it and you don't get diabetes, guess what? It worked. If you do something else and it does away with your diabetes, guess what? It works. 
But uh, the point is that we not latch on to things so much and be so closed-minded and lack humility that we're unwilling, when we are presented with a greater truth, to even consider it because, by God, you cannot question me. I decided. Who are you? Again, what it does is it makes us actually not stronger. It creates a greater fragility that allows us to not be confronted and therefore swept away with whoever grabs hold of our ear and tells us what we already decided we wanted to hear. And so this is what Peter is confronting and has been confronting with his letters. It's one of the reasons if you go back and read 2 Peter 1, he mentions knowledge four times. It's so critical that we know, we know who God is in the way that he's revealed himself and not in the ways that we would prefer. And not in the ways that necessarily make us more comfortable. I've often heard it said, if your God only makes you comfortable, it's not the God of the Bible. Another way of saying it is, if your God only has the same enemies as you, he's not the God of the Bible. And so as we step into this, hear what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the good doctor, says. He says, the whole art of life is to be able to discriminate between the true and the false, and then to, to reject the false utterly and cleave to what alone is ultimately true. And so as we step into this, let's keep in mind that there is a truth that has been revealed to us in the person and work of Christ that cannot be improved upon. There's a truth about God the Father in the indicatives of his love for us that cannot be improved upon. And that's critical to us, and it's critical that we know the depths of both of those things, because they have neither width nor height, nor depth nor boundary. We'll spend an eternity enjoying them. If you would, give your attention to the reading of God's Word. This is 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3. This is the call to beware false teachers. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Now, that but connects to the previous piece at the end of chapter 1 where he had said, remember, he said, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths. In fact, if you really look at the gospel, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like if, you, if you're trying to start a movement asking people to suffer and, and holding on until the end to get their real reward is probably not the best way to go about it. Wouldn't you agree? What you got to do is you got to get them in with the good stuff, as most cults do, and they don't flip and show you the weird stuff until much later on. Until you're so far in, right? You've already bought that little weird machine in Scientology for 30 grand. You're like, well, I got to ride this out, right? I'm so invested, I can't turn back now. But the gospel doesn't pretend that. Notice how the story begins. It begins with the fall, essentially. It begins with creation, yes, but how quickly it transitions into the fall. 
And so the gospel is not some cleverly devised myth. And, and what Peter's saying here is that just because God spoke via the Holy Spirit to write the scriptures doesn't mean it won't be opposed. We have to remember there is a war going on. That the kingdoms of darkness are pitted against the kingdom of light. And that war is real and it's ongoing. And so what he's saying is that even though the Spirit was at work, there were false prophets that rose among them. This is oftentimes the price of freedom, isn't it? That if God is going to grant us some measure of freedom of some kind, that means that we have the ability to twist his truth. And so just as then, Peter's making it clear, so it will be now. And here's the really hard part. They're going to rise not from the outside, but they're going to be your friends sometimes. They're going to be people that you've invested in. They're going to be people that you've eaten dinner with. Now, don't go getting suspicious and trying to eyeball who's the most likely candidate for false teacher here at Christ Community Church. However, it is important that we be a people who are growing in knowledge and most of all that you don't take everything I say or Matt says or Robbie says or any of the elders say as gospel that you have not read in God's word and see clearly. This is important that you be active in cultivating your faith and your knowledge and your understanding of the scriptures. So Peter's saying these people will rise from among you and it's not like they're going to be obvious, like you can see them from a mile off. No, it says they're going to start secretly. Their heresy will not be something that you see right away. They won't start with, hey, listen, I've got a really good idea that's actually going to cause you to suffer more than the gospel does. And, and it's going to rob you of all joy, future hope, and anything and everything that you think is good. You still listening? That's not where it'll start. What's it going to offer you? What are they going to offer first? I've got a faster way for you to become what you've always wanted to be. I've got a better way than the way of suffering. And you can be glorious. I've got a better way than Christ himself. So they will do this in secret, and then they will bring these destructive heresies, and unfortunately, we won't know until they've actually done their damage. What has happened among us, unless we are watchful and mindful and growing ourselves, doing what Peter challenged us to do in 1 Peter. This is the antidote to continue to mature in your faith and understanding of who Christ is and who God is. When you stop growing, you are in a very, very dangerous place. And that should cause you to look to the hills. That should cause you to look to the scriptures. That should cause you to long more for the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And it may not be a joyous time. In fact, as Rankin-Wilborn argues in Union with Christ, it is the doldrums, it is that desert place in which you grow the most, actually. Interestingly enough, it's where your faith really gets tested and the roots go deep. But so often we have the mindset that no, the desert, the doldrums, that means that God has departed from me. That means something is wrong. No, that means that you, like Christ, has been invited to a place where you grow. 
Notice right after Christ's baptism, where'd he go? It's a huge party, right? Like a bar mitzvah or something? No. Where did he go? He went directly into the wilderness led by the Holy Spirit to be tested straight away. So we, in the same way, are often tested. So you can't see the desert place. You can't see the doldrums as a bad thing, per se. But oftentimes, what these folks are going to offer you is anything but that, something that's going to take away the desert place. It'll take away the doldrums because you'll, you'll be so fanned into flame of excitement and joy and, and, and just ecstasy. Interesting that he uses the words, and people will follow their what? Sensuality. What does that mean? Is that like a first century dirty word or something? Well, what he's saying is what he's been saying, which is you are allowing your passions, your feelings to control you. You are allowing something that is visceral, that is operating at the sub kind of noetic level to dictate what you think is true and where you go and what you do. Is that healthy? No, he says, be sober-minded, be self-controlled, have knowledge. Don't let your, your emotions carry you away. Don't follow after things that you think, and again, is he saying, is Peter arguing that, that your emotions don't mean anything at all? It's not what he's saying. What's he saying? They just can't be primary. There has to be a greater truth than your emotions and your feelings. Have any of you ever experienced an emotion that you discovered, that's really not true? Have you ever told somebody you love them and they're not here today, meaning you didn't marry them? You, you swore to the end of time you'd be with them, and they're gone. We've all done it. We've all let our emotions run away with us. I've quoted, so, I've said things I wish I could take back, so foolish. Quoted songs, thinking I was being so powerful amazing. Susan's, she's innocuous to all that. Just water off a duck's back. It doesn't work. Praise God. Uh, and so, and so we, we've all done it. We've all let our emotions carry us away. How many times have you gotten just horrifically angry about something only to discover you were wrong? You were coming at it all sideways. I've had Susan have to grab me a number. I'd be mad at the kids about something. And she went, wait, 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 wait. What she's actually saying is, and she, I just gave it away, my daughter, Kimberly. What she's actually saying is this. I'm like, oh, reel it back in. You know, right? We all do it. We, we, we have experienced the wrongness of our emotions. And yet, for some reason, we keep going to that same well again and again. No, 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 no. This time, this time's going to be different. I'm older. I'm smarter. I'm, I'm scarred, but smarter. I got it now. You can't trust your emotions. You can't follow after these things with sensuality. You must test the spirits, as John tells us in 1 John 4. We are to be a people who push against things. It's actually not a bad idea to have a hermeneutic of suspicion, so long as it doesn't drag you into cynicism, the other ditch on the other side. And so may we be a people who so know Christ that when someone offers something that is not of him, we would sense it straight away. And so he says, they, they deny the master who bought them. Now, this, this doesn't mean that they have gained their salvation. They're going to lose their salvation. 
But what it does mean is there's a common grace in which they've been invited and they've been able to see and hear the gospel. He purchased this opportunity for them and they are rejecting it out of hand, causing others to blaspheme. What does it mean to blaspheme? Well, it means that you are trying to assume the position of God and you decide what's right and wrong as opposed to the means by which God has determined his word first and foremost. And so they're blaspheming and they're bringing themselves this swift destruction, which we have to be careful because we have to remember, and Peter's going to say this in 2 Peter 3, a day is as a thousand years with the Lord. Even swift for him is oftentimes long-suffering and patience and kindness toward us. See, what's happening is these false teachers are kind of like, for those of you who have children who kind of, you know, you tell them not to do something, don't touch this, and they're like, I'm just kind of hovering. It's kind of not really touching it. You know, they keep getting closer and closer. And so they're kind of towing the line with their false teaching. That's what, like I said, they don't come out straight away with the full blasphemy. They're just kind of towing the line, and when nothing happens to them, they assume God is asleep. God is not at work here. We can get away with a little bit more. And they get away with a little bit more and a little bit more. And what they mistake is God's patience and long-suffering and his kindness for him being asleep. But what he's saying to the people of God is, that's not true. I am not asleep. In fact, the psalmist speaks to this. God is not asleep ever. He's constantly at work on behalf of his people. And he will be just. He will judge rightly at some point. And so Peter's making sure that what we know about the false teachers is they're not concerned with our greater good, which is what they often offer. All they are interested in is you as a commodified thing. How can you help them in their greed and in their sensuality? Are you interested in being a commodity for someone else? That should, of the most rebellious aspects of us, this ought to help us the most with false teachers, but it's crazy how quickly we fall. You would think that our unwillingness to be a commodity would help us, and yet what we discover is, no, that's really all we want to be. We want the simplest road possible. We want somebody to tell us what to do and then leave us alone when we don't do it, which false teachers are all too willing to do, by the way. They're not going to hold you accountable. They just want to move you off of the things of God, the firm foundation. They just want you to not glorify God. That's all they care about. And remember whose name they come in. Their father is Satan. And remember, is he looking for followers or is he looking for food? He's looking for food. Your destruction is the only thing he's interested in because you bear the image even in your sin, you understand. You're still at risk for glorifying God even in your sin. It's only when you die in it and you're sealed for eternity that he's happy. So these false teachers, they just want to consume you and they want to make sure that God is not glorified. And here's what's really interesting. In Matthew 24, verses 23 and 24, Jesus predicts the coming of false prophets and false teachers. And he says something very interesting that I think we need to remember. He says they are going to come with great signs and wonders. So what does that mean? That means that they have supernatural power and they have certain abilities that we would call spiritual gifts. 
they are able to do some things that we think are only associated with the people of God. Whereas what we need to do is always check those things against the truths of Scripture. It's fascinating to me how many people practice spiritual gifts that can't control their temper. How many people are able to actually do some kind of signs and wonders and they don't have the fruit of the Spirit anywhere in them at all? They're able to do amazing things that make us, that, are, that, that we're in awe of. And yet, and yet, they don't have the basic everyday quotidianness of the Spirit at work in them. Why would we not question that? Why would we not say, what you're doing may be amazing, it may even be good, but something is off. And this is not of Christ. And so, one of the things that we have to do is become discerning. And we will only become discerning as we cultivate our understanding of the Lord our God and Christ the Son whom he sent and the work, true work of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's worth quoting again, he's just smart. Uh, and he said this, he said, if Christ is not the center, he's being denied. Now, straight away, a bunch of you are like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's kind of absolutist, don't you think? I mean, that's pretty kind of straight out there. Is Christ not making an absolute claim according to Psalm 2? Is he not king? And is there another throne? For, does he t is it a series of thrones that he sits upon working his way toward the center? Or has he ascended and sat down at the right hand of the Father because his work is finished and that is his rightful place? So he is either king and lord of your life or he is not. You're denying him. He goes on to say, he is either in the center or he is nowhere. And no one can give hope either to the individual or to the world today who is not centered absolutely upon the atonement. Meaning if there's any other way being offered, there's no true hope in that. Doesn't mean it doesn't give us hope, right? Because we're feeling people, but it's a lesser hope. He is a false prophet and a false teacher who offers such. Let me ask you, have you ever fallen for false teaching? And the truth is, we all probably have at some point, right? There's things that we just, we wanted it to be true. It made Christianity easier for a season, right? It, it answered some questions that we thought we had. It actually fit with what we had already decided, much like what Thomas Watson was saying, or Herodotus said, is we think it's right because we've been doing it. I remember when I was an unbeliever, and I, th I think this still counts, right? The false teaching, it was so fascinating. I was this radical anti-theist, right? I hate God, but I was big into spirituality. Does that even make sense? Like, do you guys remember the Celestine Prophecy by James Redfield or whatever his name was? What a terrible book. I mean, I read that like it was like, hmm, something's being discovered. And I did this other thing called The Divine Warrior. <laughs> what a bunch of trash. But man, I was into it, right? I hated God. I hated anything to do with Christianity. Don't you try to tell me there's somebody who has written some stuff down and it might be true. No, I'm gonna listen to this guy from California who wrote about the divine warrior who had a bad peyote experience. I'm listening to him. No history whatsoever, right? Me and all of my intellect, for all the books I've read, I drank that stuff down. 
and maddeningly to my wife and probably most of my friends, I read Sacred Hoops by Phil Jackson and suddenly I'm a Zen Christian. Like, shouldn't it disturb me a little bit how easily swayed I am? Shouldn't it humble me to some extent that for all of the power that the Lord has given to me in terms of reading and remembering and quoting and this, that, and the other, that I would so easily read one book, not test it at all, by the way. He just won a few championships. He got to be smart. He got people to win together who were, couldn't do anything else. I'm listening to him. And so have I, have, do I, is there a need for me to have lost that humility? Should I not also use the same hermeneutic of suspicion with Scripture itself and other things to test it, to see if, in fact, it does match up before I go gravitating and latching onto something that is partially spoken of in Scripture? Like, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about the baptism of the dead, how excited should I get? Should I write a whole book about the baptism of the dead based on one verse that we've got nothing to hang it on? No, it's probably a really bad idea. I'm not saying it's not in Scripture. I'm not saying we shouldn't try to investigate it, but if you've investigated it, you've discovered there's no other verse that helps you understand it. None. Harry Reader, who's smarter than anybody of, of us in here, a friend of mine one time said, Harry, explain the baptism of the dead. And Harry <clears throat> cleared his throat, got ready, he said, <clears throat> I have no idea. <laughs> and the guy was like, well, man, right? So some things are going to be mysterious to us. Uh, maybe there'll be a Q&A session in he heaven before we kind of get into the worship part. Um, but but, but it's, it's important that we continue to use the gifts that the Lord has given us to examine, to test, and to make sure that Scripture verifies Scripture and that we use the wise counsel around us and remember how easily led astray we really are. And in that false teaching, what, what attracted you to it? Like for those of you who can admit, I felt, I've fallen for, and it doesn't have to be full-blown blown heresy. It can just be some weird extant view that you got tangled up in for a little while. What was it that attracted you? That's important for you to examine. What was it that drew you to it? What did it offer you that was unique? Because that'll teach you something about the place at which you need to be the most humble and thoughtful and that you need to cultivate. And then better, what are you doing to protect yourself from false teaching? Because it's everywhere. And let me, let me make a statement real quick for those of you, you may, if you're wicked like me, you may be thinking, I bet Cameron calls false teaching anything that doesn't agree with him. Uh, that'd be a deft move on your part. But it's just not, actually, it's not true. Uh, I, I'm okay with, uh, actually, I, I'm okay if, if you can, but if, if you're going to come at me with something, tell me I'm wrong, now you're going to you're gonna have to have some meat behind you, right? You're going to have to have some scripture to show. I'm not just going to take, you're not going to say, hey, I read Celestine Prophecy because I've been there. I've already been there. I've gone over that road. But not because you say a big name said it, am I going to swallow it? I'm just not. And nor should you. Not because I say it should you swallow it. You should be just like the Bereans and make sure you are checking things against the scripture to ensure that what we are doing is exalting Christ above all. To do anything less is to circle the drain of false teaching. And what are you doing to protect yourself? 
Are you engaging Scripture at a level where it's sticking to your ribs? Are you doing things that are helping you to grow in your love and affection for Christ and his people? These are important things. If you would turn back to the text as I read 4 through 16 and finish out, this is the call to remember God's just judgment and faithful deliverance of the righteous in Christ. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So here what Peter's doing is he's using examples from the history of God's people to show them that the Lord, you, you will endure trial, right? So he's, he's reminding us of 1 Peter, you will suffer in this world if you seek to evidence Christ. So many of you who are currently in middle school or high school, if you are trying to walk for Christ in any way, shape, or form, you feel this. We've talked about this in here before, how the single greatest epithet that could be uttered over you is that you're a goody two-shoes. Really, the single greatest epithet? That's a curse word now? Wow, we've come so far, haven't we? And so... And so what he's saying is that the history of God's people has known trial and tribulation that the society around them and even from within them would attack and, and seek to destroy and God in great justice would bring judgment. Now, the first one that he uses about the angels, there is a lot of, uh, we're not going to resolve this here this morning, there's a lot of battle back and forth as to what is he talking about there? Is he referring to Satan's fall? with all the angels? 
Is he referring to the events right prior to the flood when the sons of God are mating with the, with the daughters of men? Um, there's no way to know entirely for sure. My take on it is, is that he's actually referring to the fall of Satan before creation begins, which signals that the fall of Satan did not cause him for one second to decide not to make us. Because he knows his sovereign power, and he knows that at the end of the day, he will have his own. His children will be brought to him, which is why his judgment at times seems so ferocious. I can guarantee you, if I, as an object lesson, decided I was going to kill one of your children, you who are docile would suddenly grow fangs and claws to protect that child. I don't know why it is that we are so irritated with God when he does the same. That when his children are under attack and going to be swept from the face of the earth, which, by the way, is the, is the project of the principalities and powers of darkness, I'm not sure why we get so frustrated and upset when he rises up and protects his own. Of course, we would like for him to do it more often than he does in one sense. It's, again, we're, we're people who we just swing all over the place, don't we? And so, in mentioning the angels, what essentially Peter is saying is that from the very start, even though the story starts off sideways, God continues. And then he uses the example of Noah, and he says the flood destroys, essentially makes recreation. He's, per, he's cleansing everything of the sin that was in the darkness of the hearts of men, and yet Noah was preserved. And then he uses Lot when Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed because of their sensuality, and Lot is preserved. And he says, now listen, God knows how to deliver people from trials. He knows how to judge the wicked. Leave those things to him. You continue in your obedience on the firm foundation that he has provided for you in Christ. And he goes on as he mentions that to them and makes that point so strongly to make sure that they understand the false teachers are arrogant, they're bold, they're willful, they don't care anything about themselves or anybody else. Really, they're just they're operating according to their lusts. Notice the language of commodity. The whole time they're eating with you, their eyes are filled with adultery. All they're doing is looking around the room and seeing what they can consume, what would be good for their flesh, not yours. He goes on to say that they are creatures of instinct. That the natural end for them, the wage of their sin is death, unless they repent, unless they See the patience of the Lord, unless they witness your testimony. Remember what he said in 1 Peter. He said that the people of the world will actually acknowledge God through your behavior. How you endure suffering, how you navigate dealing with their false teaching will actually and could quite potentially be the means by which they come into the kingdom and become a brother or sister in Christ. So there's more at stake here than just you. He goes on to say, and he uses this, he closes with the story of Balaam, which is from Numbers 22 through 25. And you wonder, I'm sure we all have, what, what would the talking donkey story? Is that just some leftover Aesop fable type stuff? No. Actually, I, I think it was a historic event for sure. And what he was showing is that the wisdom of God is greater than the wisdom of man. 
and that Balaam wasn't going to listen to anybody. In fact, he was unwilling to deal with the fact that an angel of the Lord was in front of him. That's how arrogant he was. It took something so decentering, so transformative as a talking donkey to get his attention. How about you? What does it take to get your attention? What does it take for you to recognize the presence of the Lord and the truth of God? Is what he said not enough? Do we need greater miracles? Do we need more whiz-bang? Is his word not nearly sufficient for us? The means of grace, not enough. It would be good for us to recognize the things that the Lord has ordained and deemed good and that we would honor those things, submit to those things, cultivate those things so that we would not be led astray by false teachers and so that some false teachers may come to know the Lord. Because I'm here to tell you, I think at times I've been a false teacher. Especially back in my Zen Christian days. Because I spouted that stuff to everybody I could talk to. Don't you think that's a false teacher? And the Lord was so patient and kind. I don't know why he didn't sew my mouth shut or send a talking gecko. I had a bunch of geckos back in those days. I don't want, if one of them had talked, I think I'd have straightened up maybe. Or I'd have charged people to come see this talking gecko. And then told them about Zen Christianity. Listen to what Richard Bauckham says about this. He says, the immorality that these false teachers are teaching and permitted was no doubt largely a relapse into the ways of pagan society. Always a strong temptation in the early Christian churches. Let me pause. Is not the, the temptation to relapse into the ways of the world still the same? Don't we want to just do what we want to do and be left alone and have nobody say anything to us? Again, I'm so astonished at times at the fragility that we carry around. He goes on to say, but in a society where every opportunity of maligning Christians and Christianity was taken, Christians whose moral standards were no higher than their pagan neighbors were a scandal. Instead of witnessing to their neighbors, they were bringing discredit on the Christian way of life. I know this to be true. I used to serve at the rescue mission quite a bit. I remember one time in particular, uh, uh, I had a guy in the car and I was taking him over to the hospital to visit somebody and I, I used some language that just wasn't Christian. I know that's hard for y'all to believe. And he was, he was so put off by it, it ruined mine and his relationship. David and I had a really good relationship up until that point. And I learned a very valuable lesson that day. I think. I'm still learning it, I think. The ways of the world are not attractive to the people of the world, actually. And if they're actually suffering and looking for an answer, us offering them more of the same, or that Christianity is just like the ways of the world, but without all the teeth, who wants that? So let me ask you this. In what ways does the guarantee of God's just judgment and faithful deliverance of the righteous in Christ, what ways does it affect your view of worship? Does it grant you a measure of freedom to come in and worship knowing that it's been decided Jesus is victorious? 
We reside between the now and the not yet until the day comes when he reigns in full and all things are made new. But it's been decided. Does that affect how you worship? Does that give you freedom in your worship? Does that allow you to recognize that even though he, he seems to be tarrying, even though bad things go on in the world, it was just the shooting yesterday in Pittsburgh in the synagogue, which 11 people lost their lives. There's just stuff all the time, right? Young lady who was killed at University of Utah. It's just there's no, seems to be no good news most days. Tennessee couldn't beat South Carolina. I'm sorry. So, so how do these things actually give us freedom? How does it affect your view of discipleship? Do you recognize the value of growing in your knowledge of who God is, even though the story has been decided? How does it affect how you live in the world? Knowing that you might be persecuted, knowing that you, what you say may be twisted. This, this is one of the hardest things for me, I'll tell you, especially being a, a speaker up front. I tell Susan all the time, I have the gift of tongues, I just need an interpreter because I don't know what you guys are hearing some days. Like how it gets translated. Had a lady one time swear, not here, by the way, another church, that I said that w- women shouldn't wear makeup. I, Kelly, thank you that you thought that was funny. I've never said that, never. And she swore in the sermon that I said, if they do, it's like putting lipstick on a pig. And she said, I, went, I told all the ladies at work they need to quit because you said it. I was like, you, you used my name. Did you, last name too? Oh my goodness. But if you, if you, please hear clearly, God loves you. And what he wants for you is so much greater than any other human being could ever want for you. And because of what he's done for you in Christ and what we're about to celebrate in this table, there is no greater gift you could be given. There's nothing anyone has to offer by far. There's no additional information to be given on that. It is finished. And we celebrate this table until he comes again. And the reason we celebrate it until he comes again is because we believe he's coming again. Which First Peter says the false teachers are really, that's what they're pushing against is the return of Christ. And so... May we learn from 2 Peter 2, 1 through 16 that we ought to beware false teachers who blaspheme God and exploit us for their own pleasure and gain. And that we need to remember God's just judgment and faithful deliverance of the righteous in Christ and that we would cultivate our knowledge and understanding of who God is, who Christ is, who the Holy Spirit is, and who that makes us in the kingdom.